Spectrum is brought to you by the Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University. The Scripps College offers the foundation for individuals seeking to blend creativity and practice so that graduates have the freedom to direct their skills and move the world forward. Its faculty takes a multidisciplinary approach to academic, professional, and social growth so that graduates have relentless optimism to navigate the changing environment. Learn more at ohio.edu slash Scripps College. Welcome to Spectrum. Spectrum features conversations with fascinating people. Some are famous and some aren't, but the common thread is that they all have captivating stories. Today, we're talking again with Dr. Kenneth Johnson. He's the Executive Dean of the Heritage College of Osteopathic Medicine and the Chief Medical Officer at Ohio University. Dr. Johnson also serves as Chair of the Ohio Council of Medical School Deans. Today, Dr. Johnson talks with us about considerations for opening schools in the fall, given the COVID pandemic. Dr. Johnson, uh, everybody, I think, is concerned about this fall and students going back to school, K through 12. And when I say everybody, it's teachers, it's administrators, it's students, uh, it's everybody in the community. Can we do this safely or is that a pipe dream? Well, I, I think starting from the, the biggest picture possible about the level of disease we're seeing in the United States compared to other countries, and I do think there's huge challenges there. And I, I've seen some nurses outline just the difficulty that they would have with, a, let's take a typical example of a child who comes to the nurse's station not feeling well. Well, under usual circumstances, you might have them lay down, see how they're doing, send them back to the class. In this case, you're probably going to send them home right away. And, and that nurse uh, may want and or need appropriately to have PPE equipment just to interview the, uh, the student, um, which for K through 12 is not you know, part of their normal routine. So huge challenges. We've seen various guidelines, and I, I don't want this to be political, but we've seen various guidelines from the CDC, some stricter, the, the most recent ones, more lenient, uh, really pushing for schools uh, to open. What considerations should a school board take in making that decision? Yeah, I think it has to be both for the students and then the their their teachers and their and their staff, uh, as well as the as well as the community. We we know that that kids um, get COVID, they carry COVID, uh, they can spread COVID. They tend to get much less sick uh, than adults. Uh, adults are the ones that tend to uh, get on uh, disease much more uh, significantly. Um, the guidelines around having um, physical distancing and setting up classrooms differently, setting up um, how you have people go through a cafeteria, um, uh, all those protective measures to try to help uh, decrease uh, the spread of disease. And, uh, and I think we've already seen that 
you know, some of the schools that have started early, the K through 12 that have had on, you know, some challenges the first day of, of school. We've, we've seen professional athletics have difficulty too, and they're in these close quarter settings, uh, not totally atypical from schools. Yeah. So Tom, think about what, what, what they're doing. So some of them like major league baseball started off by doing a, um, swab test every day and then going to a protocol of twice twice a week testing in a very highly controlled environment uh, and even even with that on challenges where the where you're seeing outbreaks and it's just really difficult this is a i don't know what the best analogy is it's, it's a pretty leaky pipe um, when it comes to trying to control on covid due to the level of infectivity and just how much was how much it's a, is in the community I know the CDC guidelines originally for schools said six feet apart, and that's been sort of the standard social distancing number. Um, they reduced that down to three. Um, was that based on science or just practicality? Uh, I think it's a little bit of a little bit of both. If you, particularly if you have a mask on. Uh, the spread of disease in and what I've before you know previously called this corona cloud as you're breathing out when you put a mask on it really decreases the amount of COVID that it is around any one person so the idea that you might be able to have less uh, less dis distancing but that that is also in a, a perfect world where uh, you keep your mask on all the time you don't have to sneeze on um, take your mask off sneeze and COVID can spread you know 25 feet on so pretty, pretty hard to control all the factors. There was a study that came out last week, or at least came out in the popular media last week, saying that uh, COVID can be spread by nine-year-olds and above. Was that new science? Uh, we've been, yeah, that, that's been followed on uh, pretty closely in trying to answer that, that question. And we're, we're gaining more and more information every day as we're, unable to um, follow disease here particularly in the in the United States and asking that asking that question because one of the questions was since kids got the disease less were they still carriers of the disease and it seems like the answer is yes they are carriers and on um, and can spread disease including asymptomatically so let's go back to the school situation and let's say that we have a, a classroom that's social distanced and, and just hypothetically, instead of 30 kids, there are 10 kids in, in the class now. Uh, and one of them gets sick. What does the school do at that point? One of them tests positive. They may not even get sick. I shouldn't yeah. use get sick, they, right. but they test positive. What happens to that teacher? What happens to the rest of the students? What happens to the whole school? Yeah, well, well, hopefully, you know, in the ideal situation, the school would already have a protocol in place that would, would, would deal with that situation and what they would do on, at that time. And if you have the big question really is if you have everybody in a mask, the student, the students, the teacher, on who, who in that cohort then needs to be sent home, who needs to get contact tracing on as, as part of that. And really it's those people that are the closest to the, to the positive student uh, that need that tracing. Now, I think the difficult part of this is that 
you could have someone who has very much, and we're seeing this in the young, we see very mild symptoms. Um, and so let, let, me, let me do a typical week. So on, on Monday, there's a student who um, just starts to not feel so well. And on Tuesday, they start to feel worse. On Wednesday, they don't go to school and they get tested and they get their test result on Thursday. Um, so now think back about uh, you're, you're definitely infectious for a couple days before you have on symptoms and certainly when you do have symptoms. So that the, the, it just kind of the asynchronous nature of all this makes that management of it a nightmare because now you're talking about the last time this child was in a space was a couple of days ago uh, and how do you, you know, kind of how do you manage that? Or likely the student was in seven, eight or nine spaces uh, and, how, and how do you how do you manage that? Well, I, I, I was watching a, a program on, on television last week, and, and it, something dawned on me. Uh, we, we talk about social distancing of students. And in a classroom, that's probably doable uh, to, to some degree. But the, the vision I had on TV was a, a bunch of middle schoolers running down the hall Slapping each other on the back, hitting each other on the arms, you know, grabbing each other around the neck, you know, that's what kids do. You know, how do you regulate every movement of a child? Yeah, that's. I think that's what's what has led some um, K through twelve schools to to go online uh, because of those on um, you know kind of those spaces in between uh, in the hallway and uh, trying to feed. On kids, on et cetera, and on, it's the nature of kids and all of us really to want to come together. And here's a place where you're trying to keep people at least six feet apart and not have any interactions that last more than 15 minutes on in that six feet space. So it's a real challenge. I know that you look at things from a medical point of view, Dr. Johnson, but you, you also uh, have a, a practical side beyond that, uh, being an administrator. Um, when you look at a, a situation like opening schools uh, and opening it to face-to-face, you take care of one problem in that Parents who need to go back to work can now, if possible, go back to work without worrying about their children for a period of time during the day. So economically, it may be advisable in one sense, but in another sense, it may not be medically practical. How does one balance those things? Yeah, Tom, I think you bring up a, a good big picture question, which then becomes overall cost, right? Yeah. So if you have if you have children that get infected that then are also infecting family members, particularly those that are ill, um, and looking at the big picture and looking at what the potential outcomes are there, it gets it gets really hard. And I think that this the experiment of reopening America and in particular reopening on uh, education, is, is one that we need to watch on really closely and, and see what kind of success there is, but also that you know, kind of downstream effects um, that could come from that. You know as, as well as I know that all schools are not the same. We have some brilliant uh, 
Lead design schools that uh, can accommodate almost anything. We have other schools in urban environments and in rural environments that are pathetic in, uh, at, at best. Um, talk about environmental factors in what we should be looking at, uh, whether we reopen a school. How much environmental impact is there? in in the the protection against covid yeah so something else to to consider is things like just your ventilation system on and do you have appropriate and proper on ventilation and so the smaller the space the less ventilation the higher particularly again without a mask the higher the potential for spread of of, of disease so you you have to you have to take all all things into consideration not just the social distancing piece but on what your what your environment, including ventilation, uh, will will allow you to do, which actually leads to some pretty interesting things that we're seeing around the country, like schools that are going outdoor on uh, outdoors on uh, and under tents and in places that you can you can do that. You know, maybe not so much on in the north on uh, in the winter that you'd be able to do that, but. And um, we, we see much less spread of disease on outside the, you know, the wind and, um, you know, kind of gets rid of the droplets pretty fast and it drops to the ground um, and so much less than, than what you see indoors. So we're seeing some pretty um, innovative solutions that are, that are emerging around the country. Uh, poor uh, HVAC systems have been the cause of disease in the past, not necessarily this disease, but other diseases in the in the past. H how important are they now that we're talking about COVID? Oh, I think they're very important. You know, the amount of airflow and kind of clearing air out of a space uh, is is really very important to, uh, you know, to try to help um, minimize the, you know, what could become the collective corona cloud on a COVID cloud in a uh, in a space without being able to move the air. If you were a teacher in a K through 12 public school situation and you're being asked to go back uh, either mid to end of August or beginning of September, what would be your legitimate fears? Well, um, that all of the the things I'd be looking out for that all the protective measures have been um, put into place. So on um, physical distancing in the class, on um, requirements for on um, masks um, for students, on um, easily and accessible hand washing, on um, flow of traffic in and out of on um, spaces and like we talked about before, control on um, in the uh, in the hallway. Um, and then and um, also depending on whether I had any on um, you know pre-existing uh, conditions that would put me at, at a, in, a, in a higher risk um, category. So I, I'd want to ensure that there's been a lot of planning and preparation uh, to help um, ensure that those things are in place. And if you're a parent of a child uh, and, and you're going, okay, do I homeschool uh, do I try to do remote? Do I send Johnny or Sally back uh, and and take my chances and and figure that they know what they're doing at the school system? 
Uh, what considerations do you have as a parent? Well, I think they're similar. On in and has uh, I think I'd ask the question. You know, has the school articulated to me a very clear plan of management, and not only management of here are the protective measures that are in place, but here's our plan if someone were to be COVID positive, and and how that would be how that would be managed, on um, so that they were really explicitly uh, articulated and and not at the level of uh, we will have physical distancing and uh, but without a lot of detail below it. People in the United States, Dr. Johnson, as you well know, uh, take great pride in uh, schools, uh, K through 12, and most people take great pride that they're locally controlled. Uh, local school boards, uh, uh, local mandates, uh, local pride, uh, all the things that go along with that. However, in this situation, if you have local control, it seems like you're having a patchwork of solutions, say, even within the same county. Uh, how can that work? Yeah, I think there's a there's a plus and minus to that, which is that on um, you know kind of the local solutions for the local conditions and 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 really applying that um, very specifically, I think is helpful. Um, but uh, also the minus on um, when when we take a when we take a look at this is that there's really tremendous pressure uh, in a, in a lot of a lot of different ways. So. On uh, mandates uh, to do certain things, or to try to follow, uh, you know, national national guidelines, and a you know more comprehensive approach that that in some ways, you know, relieves the load or the burden on uh, off of on um, you know particularly you know smaller schools on um, smaller settings, and um, could 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 be helpful. I mean, if you think about every, everybody doing this. On over and over and over again separately on versus the you know kind of the combined work that could be that could be helpful. We'll be back after this message. Spectrum's brought to you by the Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University. The Scripps College is one of the most comprehensive colleges of communication in the country. It offers a foundation of creativity and practice so that graduates can move the world forward. In particular, the Scripps College offers challenging coursework that holds students to high expectations, an integrated curriculum that combines a variety of disciplines and ideas, and student-driven media organizations where students can apply these skills and gain experience that enables them to hit the ground running upon graduation. That's the Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University. We, we heard political debate uh, president, you know, mandating that schools open and then was informed that he couldn't mandate necessarily schools open. We talked, heard debate about whether federal funding could be withheld. But but what role does some place like the National Institutes of Health or uh, the CDC 
Uh, are they just merely guidelines or can they have some power in formulating a national model? Oh, Tom, that's such a it's such a great question. Um, and I, I do think that I, us putting our best thinking forward with the best information on, and, and leveraging all resources would be extremely helpful. On, if you need to have on testing solutions on for COVID, on uh, a, a way to make that easily and readily available, on solutions for on contact tracing and local management, on easy systems to put on in place instead of everybody reinventing the wheel on over and over again. And, and, and it, I think if you look around the world, the countries that have had the most comprehensive and swift approach to on to COVID are the ones who have uh, managed the disease process on to the highest and to the, and to the best. We obviously as a country are not doing well uh, with this by, by comparative uh, measures to, to other countries. Uh, is it because of that lack of, of central control? Uh, I, I think it might be, uh, maybe more uh, the, the lack of a, a swift and comprehensive on um, plan, a plan that was already in place and, and ready to go. So as an example, South Korea had a very comprehensive plan on stockpiles of on, on PPE equipment and on respirators, on, et cetera, and, and just really ready to um, enact uh, what they needed to to try to control the spread of disease and manage any disease that they uh, that they encountered on um, and on um, I I don't think the same thing could be said for the for the United States on um, here on um, right now and and some you know history repeats itself in, in some ways so on um, disease at a time when people come together like the Fourth of July or Memorial Day etc in in 1918 in that pandemic on um, in Philadelphia on a flu pandemic uh, to try to raise the spirits of the of the folks there they held a you know fourth of july parade where within weeks four hundred thousand people became infected um, so it's 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 really having you know it's 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 having those things in place that are are relatively swift and um, they're not easy on uh, to uh, to manage but then you know the ability to um, to, to reopen and do some other things after you've been able to do that, you know, kind of broader management. It seems like not only are we having schools make independent decisions within a same state, we have states then making independent decisions that, that vary from, from state to state. And there's no overarching um, federal blueprint. Uh, and let me use that word, uh, blueprint for how to go about doing this. So th this patchwork just seems to not be working. Yeah, I think on the one hand, so, you know, some of the guidelines coming out of the out of the CDC have been very helpful around how to test people, how to quarantine them, when to when to take them out of quarantine, when when they can return to work, and that and that built on on built on science on, but on. Uh, we have some real challenges in, in other ways. So I, I, I saw something on, oh, a month or so ago looking at on for higher ed, if you, if, you, if you tested all of the students that were returning 
on as just as a screen, it, it would exceed the total stock supply of tests available in in the United States. So there's some real there's some real challenges on that on that we have there, and on having you know having that blueprint or our playbook on that has all the elements available on as part of the playbook. So on adequate testing, readily available, fast results, on et cetera. Those are the kind of things that I think on the on the state and and national level on um, can be done to try to um, to solve that problem and answer those you know answer those really important questions. Last time you and I talked, we talked about uh, tests testing and and test sites a, a, a bit, and uh, since then there are obviously more testing sites. Uh, both uh, uh, through hospitals and, and pharmacies and, and other means of testing. But th- there still seems to be a common difficulty with getting test results back in a timely manner. I- I- am I correct in that? Yes. So there's a, a combination of, of things. So availability of tests on uh, just the ki- test kits available, and then the ability to run the tests in large numbers and the, you know, kind of the uh, availability of uh, things that help you run a test, like the reagents that are available, uh, et cetera. So during a time where you're getting a spike of disease, you're getting a strain on the system, not only in the number of tests, but the ability to run the test, the personnel to do it, the equipment to do it, the um, supplies and supply chain uh, to uh, to do that. So we we have seen um, you know large testing organizations uh, returning tests on um, five, seven, thirteen uh, days later. Um, you know, thirteen days is you're probably over your <laughs> disease by the time you've gotten that result. And the ability to contact trace anybody uh, that you might have come into contact with gets a, to be a real a real challenge um, from from that and. I, I don't think it will be until we have tests that are readily available on, you know, almost like, you know, going to the drugstore and picking up an early pregnancy test or a rapid flu test that gives you a result, a highly reliable um, test right away, where we'll really be able to kind of respond to that challenge. Well, when we circle that back to schools, then Johnny or Sally, who uh, may present with uh, some of the symptoms, uh, you know, sniffles or whatever, uh, even if they get tested, they're, they're, those tests aren't going to come back right away. It could be a delay and it delays your decision making. And if you if you take the, uh, the um, worst case scenario approach, thinking everybody that has symptoms similar to COVID has COVID, um, that's a lot of people that uh, you are then treating as if they have COVID and the people that they've come into into contact with some some people are actually still going to have the common cold right <laughs> right and that's you know, that will be the interesting thing to see what does the what does the late fall and into winter look like with having um, whatever level of covid we have and will we see um, more disease more complicated disease on uh, and you know what will that what will that look like um, theoretically and if we're following our um, guidelines right now with social distancing and wearing masks, you actually should see maybe less of the common cold and less flu 
on than than you would on otherwise. Two other question areas, and and then I'll let you go. I know your time is really precious at, at this point. Uh, if you're a teacher, and let's say that at home you have a, a family and you have a preschooler uh, who goes off to a different school, uh, some type of, of preschool or daycare situation, and you're a teacher and, and you go to to this exposed group of your school to teach your students uh, day in and day out, are there any protections you can take that are practical when you come home not to expose your child or not to expose your spouse or your partner? Yeah, I think that just the simple things of, of, of hand washing on if you – on you know wearing your mask, taking your mask off. On so I, I go on this one. Take off your mask, wash your hands, <laughs> have your mask put. You know have your mask put in 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 some place to be you know to be washed. On and just the, you know some of those simple simple precautions on like like that. What what we really know though is it it really does seem that it's more kind of you know human to human on contact, not so much like clothes or surfaces. On, and really, the spread through, you know, kind of through air, air, air droplets that we're seeing the um, uh, disease spread here. So I do think that those those precautions make um, complete sense. And that scenario is a really tough one. And and some families have much more complicated situations than that, where you might have kids at various different ages going to a you know a variety of schools right, <laughs> as right. well. So, it's a it's a it's a really big challenge. So, if schools try to open uh, in a face to face manner, what would prompt them to close again? What what's the tipping point? What should somebody be looking at and say? Well, we just got a couple of cases, and yeah, we'll get through this. It, it's a blip. What would you be looking at as an administrator? We haven't talked about that. As an administrator, what are you looking at as, or as superintendent or the president of the school board? What are you looking at in determining whether this experiment has succeeded or failed? Yeah, I think there's some things we can learn from other disease like on flu. And when you have flu to such a high level, on schools have shut down and probably – uh, two or three things would be the um, either number or percentage of students that seem to have been uh, infected, how fast that is happening, uh, and and then the severity of of, of disease as well. Um, because um, I uh, I don't think just the numbers by themselves uh, tell the you know tell the story. The other thing that we haven't mentioned, and I would be remiss if I didn't, is uh, high school sports, high school and middle school sports, uh, contact sports, football, uh, volleyball even, uh, certainly wrestling and some of these other sports. Um, but looking at fall sports in, in, in football and, and, and volleyball, is that wise to do them? I, I think it's going to be uh, – um, so I think if we let's let's answer the question from like a risk perspective, and so, you know, okay. so from from the risk, what's the risk of spreading disease? 
on particularly if disease is pretty prevalent in the community and what can you do to help prevent it. Um, so what some schools and um, um, school systems at the state level uh, are, are looking at are, are things like frequent testing, asymptomatic testing of, um, of, of athletes. So, so imagine, uh, let's take an average football team and say there's 75 students on, uh, on that football team and you need to test them twice a week on per that, per that protocol. I think that's gonna be very challenging from a financial perspective. I also think it's gonna be challenging from an access to testing, like would you actually get access to the tests? On um, So areas like locker rooms, on people you know, being right next to each other, on face-to-face -face doing, uh, you know, doing athletics. I think the ability to mitigate risk is very difficult on in in, in certain sports on and on the ability to to follow on some protocols that might help mitigate that risk uh, i think would be a ch would be a challenge from both a financial and operational on um, perspective for um, for high for high school sports even seeing the you know how difficult it's been for professional athletics uh, to uh, to do that and the resources really kind of not even on you know on par at the at local high school we we really haven't seen a successful model have we i mean michigan state's football team uh, uh, isolated uh, last week uh, ohio university has had some athletes that uh, uh, tested positive. I think you point to almost any school of any size, and they've had some difficulties with with athletes already. Yes, that's it's it's very true, and I I th I, I really think that when we see disease come under more control around the uh, around the nation and in, in each of the states, that on um, that will be much less of a much less of a challenge. We've heard some schools uh, in in my home state here of Ohio, but uh, some schools, uh, other places also thinking, well, we'll switch out fall sports and spring sports. We'll bring spring sports, which are not as contact uh, track and, and baseball and softball. We'll move them to the fall and we'll move the contact sports, uh, football and volleyball and others uh, to the spring. It seems like we're just trying to buy time. We just keep pushing uh, to use the <laughs> push the analogy. We keep pushing that goalpost uh, yeah. further down and down the line. Well, I do think there's some wisdom, particularly if you feel like you can't start to say that you'll do it later and see what the environment um, looks like. I, I do think that um, when there's a successful, widely available vaccine that will help, you know, kind of change the environment um, for us and how we, you know, how we operate. And I, I guess I would say stay tuned because um, I, I don't think anybody will be able to predict the exact level of disease that you'll see, you know, two, three, four four months from now and the ability to do some of these, um, you know, these kind of activities and take, take a typical fall. I mean, uh, winter sport like basketball with, you know, high school stands packed uh, with people in a normal, <laughs> at a normal time, there, there may be big challenges to that. And, and being vociferous at the same time, right? <laughs> Dr. Johnson, as always, thank you so much for giving us your time. Uh, you always sort of break things down in ways that people can understand. And I really appreciate you doing that for us. Happy to be here. Thank you. 
Today, we've been talking with Dr. Kenneth Johnson, the Executive Dean of the Heritage College of Osteopathic Medicine, about schools opening in the fall. Spectrum is produced by WOUB Public Media. Adam Rich is our co-producer. I'm your host, Tom Hodson. Please subscribe to Spectrum. You can do that at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, or at NPR One. Spectrum also is available every week at the NPR Podcast Directory. We always welcome your feedback, so please rate our podcast or review it through one of your favorite podcast outlets. If you have any questions or comments about our podcast or have suggested topics for us to cover in the future, please direct them to me by email at hodson at ohio.edu. That's hodson, H-O-D-S-O-N, at ohio.edu.